night may be long and the dark may be deep, but the answers are there to be found. Whether it's the normal, the abnormal, or the paranormal, you're in the right place. Let's go beyond reality. Welcome to the show, everyone. I hope I can remember how to do this. It seems like so long since uh, we've had one of these. Uh, and it's, I know it's completely my fault, and I apologize for that. But there's just so much going on. It makes it a little bit difficult, and I'm trying to juggle a whole bunch of things, as you all know. And I appreciate your patience and your support at every step of the way. But anyway, welcome. We've got a great show tonight. We are going to be talking about a true crime story that is fascinating to me as I got to know it. And the funny thing is, is I didn't really remember this story when it was happening. And it wasn't, I mean, it was it was a while ago. It was 30 years ago. However, it was, you know, in the smack middle of my life and I should have remembered it, but but I, but I really didn't. And maybe it was because of everything else that was going on at the time in the world. But we'll get into that. Our guest tonight will be Philip Jett. He is an attorney and an author. And his new book is what we'll be talking about. The book is called Taking Mr. Exxon, The Kidnapping of an Oil Giant's President. That book will be released May 1st of this year. He's also got a book out called The Death of an Heir. Adolf Kors III and the Murder That Rocked an American Brewing Dynasty. That uh, that murder took place, and that uh, kidnapping and murder took place in 1960. The one we're going to be talking about tonight, primarily uh, about the taking of Mr. Exxon, that took, um, that took place in 1992, I think was the year. So it's a little more contemporary. But it's going to be a great conversation nonetheless. I'm really looking forward to this. And thank you all for being here. Make sure you subscribe here on YouTube and also on Twitch. If you're a Twitch user, that uh, the, the, the Twitch channel features just our live stream, obviously, but the YouTube channel has the live stream and the archive of programs. If, you, if you're interested in going back and checking out some of our previous interviews and episodes, they're all there. There's quite an archive. And uh, there, it's free. So, you know, just enjoy yourselves. Go back and check out all of those those uh, those different uh, shows. There's a lot of great guests that we've had over the course of the years. So anyway, yeah. So if, as you're commenting here, you notice I did had to do some rearranging in the studio, and I'm kind of kind of happy with the outcome. And I and I got this little thing. I can do this, which is kind of fun. I can actually do stuff like this. Let's see, let's see if it works here. Maybe it's not going to work for me. Oh yeah, it did. <laughs> it was working, but I'm watching the stream, which is delayed. <laughs> that'll get you every time anyway um let's see here what else do we have to talk about oh uh by the way if, if you, i've seen some people mention the, the other show that i'm doing and if you're interested in exploring that it is a political show and you can find that channel by going to the independence gang it's right here on youtube for now anyway so if you just switch the independent or search the independence gang you'll find it pretty simply and uh, we'd appreciate subscriptions there as well. Having a lot of, I don't know if fun is the word. I guess I feel like I'm, I'm, uh, I'm contributing to what is an important political dialogue. That's what I'm, I'm, I'm hoping is the outcome of all of this. And yes, Gene, the show tonight is about the uh, the kidnapping of Sidney Russo. Yes, that is absolutely right. And it's it's, a, it's an amazing story. And our guest tonight has written a book about it. And uh, I'm anxious to hear what he has to say. Because the, the true crime stuff is really quite fascinating to me. So we'll go to break. When we come back, we will have our guest again. Philip Jett is the author of the book we'll be talking about tonight. And he will be with us in just a moment. It's Beyond Reality, and we'll be right back. 
Hey, it's JV here. You know I've asked for your support in the past, and I'm going to do it again because it's really, really important. And there are a couple of ways you can support the show, and it's so inexpensive. Now, you can go to Patreon, and you can become a Patreon supporter, and we really, really encourage that. But there's also another way. If you look at the description of the podcast, if you're a podcast listener, and you scroll down to the bottom, there's a way to support the show directly through the podcast app. And it's only 99 cents a month. It's less than a buck. You probably have that change in your couch right now. That dollar a month less than a dollar goes a long way in helping us produce this program provide great interviews for you during the course of the week i thank you in advance because the support is so important to the program look bumble knows you're exhausted by dating all the must not take yourself too seriously and six one since that matters and what do i even say other than hey (sighs) well that's why they're introducing an all-new bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Oh, it's, it's great to be here. Sorry about that. No, that's okay. It happens. Let's talk a little bit about you before we get into the your, your work and the books and the stories that we're going to talk about tonight. But, um, you know, I was reading through your past experience as an attorney and, uh, you know, a pretty high powered guy for quite some time. Then you decided to shed all of that for a bit of a, I guess, maybe a calmer lifestyle. Tell us a little bit about your path and how you got here. Yeah. You know, it's, it's funny um, where we end up always, I have two sons that are in their early twenties and I, I always say to them, we don't know where life's going to take us, you know? Um, and I started practicing law and, and and went to school in New York. I went to NYU and then moved to Nashville and worked for a large firm and, and did corporate practice. And here, you know, we we have country music, we have athletes, we have all sorts of things. And I was fortunate to represent a lot of those people, including Fortune 500 CEOs and that sort of thing. But, you know, it's funny when people say uh, kind of a midlife crisis. For me, it was a reevaluation. And uh, I'm like, do I want to work this hard <laughs> the rest of my <laughs> life, you know? And uh, so I decided to curtail my practice and eventually retired. And now I write books uh, for, you know, instead of playing golf, I write books. There's something therapeutic for for some people, not everyone, but for some people about writing. What do you find therapeutic about writing or, or where do you get your most of your satisfaction about writing from? Yeah, you know, it's it's strange and I'm glad you pointed that out because I tell people that I'm most at peace when I'm writing. I don't know why. Uh first of all, I love it and I love the research that goes along with it. I write nonfiction only, <clears throat> which sort of borrows from the practice of my of uh law. And uh, but when I sit down to write or even thinking about writing, I, I just I feel more at ease than I do at any other time. And it's almost like uh, people who meditate. For me, it's almost uh, like that. And it, and it's a, that's a great way to put it. And one of the other things that I find when I talk to authors, people who are really passionate about this, is not only is it therapeutic in a way, but when you're writing, you kind of almost another personality kind of takes over from within you. Is that true of you as well? Well, it is. Uh, having practiced law for many years, um, you you tend to lose your individual self. You become kind of a machine. And, you know, with 
writing, what what I've discovered was my creative side. Uh, you know, there is some creativity in the practice of law, but in writing, I discovered. You know, I I don't write poetry. I'm not a painter, but uh, this is the closest thing, and I I feel more akin to those who are artists or you know in that that type of sphere uh, because I do create even if it's nonfiction, even if it's a story <clears throat> that's already out there. You know, you have to go research it. And I'm very diligent about that, and I, I actually love the research probably more than the writing, to tell you the truth. But uh, it's fun. But you, you know, you research it, you organize your thoughts, you organize the story, you put it on paper. So you are creating uh, somewhat. You know, you're taking all these facts, and you know, sometimes they amount to boxes full of facts, and you organize them in a fashion that hopefully tells an interesting story. It's there's something about uh, going out and lifting up the rocks and looking underneath and see what you can find, especially when it's in, it, it's involved in some type of, uh, you know, maybe a true crime story or a high profile news story or uh, just a mystery. But something about that search, it's almost a treasure hunt in a way. It is. And when you discover something that's been lost for decades or or maybe never known, uh, you know, you feel like you've you found the Holy Grail. Yeah. Um, and, you know, this is my second book. Um, my first book was similar. Uh, it was about the kidnapping and murder of Adolf Coors III of the Coors Brewing Company. And both of these books, not the story had not been told in book form. Uh, you know, it was contemporary newspapers, magazines, that sort of thing. Uh, so a lot, especially in Coors and somewhat in the Exxon book, uh, a lot of the facts were lost to time, and uh, you know, and I went back and and resurrected them, and and so that's kind of a cool part of what I do. Tell me a little bit about how you steered yourself to this true crime angle, to looking at these cases, which both of those cases that you've written about are fascinating, and I think a little bit undertold, as you as you said, which makes your timing perfect. But uh, what drew you to that kind of story? You know, it's funny. It was quite by accident. I didn't set out to write true crime. Um, I knew I wanted to write nonfiction, but I didn't know in in what manner. And I came across the, the Coors story by accident. I was out there taking a tour of the uh, brewery in Golden, Colorado. And if you've ever done that, uh, when you exit, you walk down a, a more or less a porcelain tile uh, hallway, and they have this wall of fame, I call it, uh, black and white photos from time beginning um, of all the Coors family and, and the, the founder and son and grandsons and that sort of thing. And as I was walking along, being the nerd that I am, I guess, sometimes, I noticed that Adolf Coors III disappeared from the wall. Uh, as I walked along, and so that struck my curiosity as to what happened to him, you know, and I I didn't think anything necessarily nefarious. I thought he may have just fallen out of, you know, the family's uh, goodwill, right. and so I went back to the hotel and, and Googled it, and then I saw the story, and I'm like, you know, that's an interesting story. I haven't heard that, and so the next reaction was, let me go to Amazon and see if there's any books on the subject. And they weren't. And then I dug more, and I'm like, you know, this story has been lost to time. And um, 
you know, you, there, you've seen maybe newspaper and, and magazine articles about it, but there was no real treatment of the case. And so that's how I got um, the true crime part, and I enjoyed it very much. And so having success with the first book, a true crime book, I'm like, you know, I'd like to just do another. And uh, But uh, I did not expect to find as interesting a story as Taking Mr. Exxon because uh, I thought it, too, had probably been written about, and it hadn't. Uh, you know, there again, it's been in the news and, and that sort of thing, but nothing – as I've treated it, where you go back and you do in-depth research and interviews and all that sort of thing and put it together in a, a nonfiction book. I remember first hearing about the Coors story on um, Forensic Files, actually, something that I've watched a lot of. Uh, great program. And I remember that episode coming up, and I thought to myself at the time, why have I not heard of this story before? Because that story alone is is quite fascinating. Now, you... Um, you uh, were not a criminal attorney, right? You were more like a business attorney. No. So, <clears throat> no, it's funny that was not my area. Although I did work in tandem sometimes with criminal attorneys, because in the corporate world, you also deal with tax law, and sometimes um, you know you have clients that are involved in tax evasion or whatever, right. and you have to bring in criminal lawyers. Or you know any other kind of thing, but no, I was not involved in criminal law, and uh, had very little interaction with law enforcement. Uh, but now it's funny. Um, some of my best friends, <laughs> after two books, some of my best friends are former FBI agents, you know, <laughs> or current FBI agents. It's kind of weird, you know. Uh, uh, when my son uh, was in the den uh, last Saturday, and um, I got a call, and it was from a former FBI agent up in New Jersey who had worked on this case. And he had another FBI agent on the phone with him. And we, so we sat here, and we chatted, and we laughed, and we talked, and we discussed and hung up. And my son's like, only my dad can sit around and talk to FBI agents on a Saturday morning. <laughs> 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 that must be really interesting, too, and I don't want to get ahead of ourselves here, but be, to be able to talk to some of the investigators that were involved in the in the story as it was unfolding, um, obviously that's great research for the book, but it just must be fascinating in general. Yeah, you know, part of, of rioting for me has been meeting people, and uh, most people, even in true crime, um, you meet people who want to talk to you, although, you know, usually the victim's family, they don't want to talk to you. And a lot of times the perpetrator's family are also hesitant, and rightfully so. But, you know, you have law enforcement, you have the courts, you have judges, you have all kinds of people that you run into. And it's always a joy to meet people. Like in the court's case, I went out and hung out in Colorado doing research and interviews and I was fortunate that I had gotten there in time because there weren't many people left. Right. This happened in 1960. That's right. So a lot of people were, you know, in their 80s um, and, you know, are now deceased. Um, and, I, you know, I got to befriend them. And, and all these people were super nice. And in the Exxon case, I tell people, you know, I always have a sort of protocol. I go through procedures. I, you know, I reach out to the FBI. I reach out to the Library of Congress. I do all this stuff, you know, the institutions, the entities 
But where I find a lot of times, and particularly in Exxon, uh, a lot of the the really good information, the interesting stuff came from former agents who a lot of these for a lot of these folks, this was the biggest case they'd ever worked. So a lot of them still had copies of files at home, you know, and photos and that sort of thing. And they were very forthcoming and sharing the information. And so I got to see a lot of things that would have been redacted in, you know, institutional files and that sort of thing that I, I got firsthand knowledge. It's really, really very interesting, very fascinating. And I want to kind of touch the soul of America here a little bit, because over the past, I don't know, five, ten years, maybe there's been this tremendous interest in true crime stories, whether it's making a murderer on Netflix or uh, the staircase. I think that's also on Netflix or uh, the Tiger King. Even I think that's also on Netflix. Obviously, Netflix has found a magic hotspot with these true crime stories. But what is it about a true crime story, even one that's been solved for that matter, that makes it so interesting to people? Yeah, you know, I think there's several things, and it's, it's a lot of it's individualized. Um, you know, for me, I, I like a good mystery. I like, even if I know what happened, I want to know the details and what people were thinking and why they were thinking that and, and how it was done and that sort of thing. And then sometimes there's almost like a dark side to me where, you know, I want to know some of the gory stuff and, and stuff that we don't, thank God, normally encounter every our daily lives. Um, and, and so that, you know, and that, um, that's in my case. And I think that's for a lot of people. And, um, you know, it's funny in the publishing business, um, true crime, like most topics go in cycles. So you can have like when cores comes out, true crime can be hot. And then maybe five years later, if I write one, it might not be as hot, you know? So, uh, there's a hit or miss to that, but generally speaking, I think most of us enjoy a good dark tale occasionally. I, you know, it, it, I don't know if I should be ashamed to admit it, but I certainly do. In fact, I gravitate <laughs> to those stories, <laughs> whether they're true crime. You should write the books, you know, you write <laughs> the books and you, you know, that's another uh, thing when I wrote Coors and then again with Exxon, you know, there's a feeling you experience certain emotions when you dig up facts, especially sad ones or, or, you know, where a person suffered and, and that sort of thing. And then you, you see details about the families and that. So you go through these emotions where you, um, you know, you feel bad or whatever. And then sometimes I feel almost guilty that I'm resurrecting this, you know, um, from that kind of standpoint. But then again, you know, it, it just comes and goes. So there is funny you pointed it out. There is a side to me occasionally that I'm like, you know, why, why am I doing this? You know, it's, it's kind of dark. It, it's, it's not too far from just the simple fact that, and I know a lot of people do this. A lot of people just like to walk through a, a cemetery or graveyard. And there's something right. about applying a little bit of, um, you know, your personal life's history, looking at somebody's name and, you know, the, their lifespan. And there's a certain, there's a certain morbid curiosity that's within us all. It's why we like horror movies, I think, in a lot of ways, too. Oh, yes. Um, yes. You know, and I, I love a good horror movie. Always have. And I even love the old uh, cheesy, you know, 1950s and 60s uh, horror movies that, you know, are pretty 
uh, lame by today's standards, but um, yeah, I, you know, I, I I'm entertained by that. And in the cemeteries, you know, uh, I know that Charleston, South Carolina, Savannah, Georgia, New Orleans, they have these tours through cemeteries at midnight and all that sort of thing. And so, yeah, it's. Uh, I think that's just part of life that we're interested in death and yeah. the other side, and and you know uh, the dark side of individuals, and that's just part of it. You know, you. We didn't have you on the program to talk about this, but you're starting to sing my song when you start talking about these <laughs> movies of the 50s and 60s, these these campy B movies that are sometimes horror, some sometimes hi-fi or sci-fi. They are my right, right. favorite films to watch. And yeah, uh, you probably know who the director Ed Wood was is. Oh yes, yeah. of course. <laughs> um, well, one of the surviving actors from his troupe is was Conrad Brooks. He's since passed away, but I came became close mm-hmm. friends with Conrad. And I've been doing this other program on weekends where I play these Conrad Brooks movies. I call it a Conradathon and we talk about the movies. And they're so bad. They're so bad, but they're charming, Philip. They're just, you know, you can't help but laugh at them. But you want to laugh with them too. Even though yeah. they weren't written to be laughed yeah. at, you can't help it. It makes it fun. So I'm right with you yeah. on that. I'm glad to hear that because I, you cannot imagine how, uh, I don't know anyone. I, I, I watch a lot of those films and, um, people think that there's something wrong with me. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, they're like, that movie is so bad. I'm like, I know. I'm, and I always say, no, it's so bad that it's good. Absolutely. You know? Yes. And they don't get that. And, uh, you know, and then, you know, the old black and white movies of the 30s, 40s, you know, whether it's sci-fi or horror or not, you know, I enjoy the placement of shadow and all yeah. that sort of thing and how it works. And there's just something artistic about it. But, yeah, the, the big, you know, the giant tarantulas and, uh, you know, the <laughs> flying saucers and uh, Dracula and everything that comes out. I mean, I, I love those things. It's- and they give – talk about – uh, stress relievers for me they're a good stress reliever i don't need pills i can just watch one of those films it's so true turner classic movies is my favorite channel on cable and uh, i'm the same way i get a real sense of peace from these films i've been watching <laughs> this is such a tangent but it's I, I i'm glad i found someone who shares this passion too <laughs> i've been watching the maltese falcon over and over again what a great oh, film yeah. you know and it, when you mentioned shadows that immediately thought of that movie um but they're all great and there's such a such a serenity to them you, you know regardless of what the genre of the film is there's just such a serenity to those movies yeah and i've run into people who say you know i don't watch black and white film i only watch color and I, I can't understand that yeah. because, um, you know, here since COVID hit, it's not been going on. But the local theater here in Nashville, uh, one of them, they once a month they play a classic film, um, and you can go and have popcorn and sit in a theater and watch. And one, one couple of years ago, I went to see the Maltese Falcon in the theater, oh, nice. and that was a real treat. Uh, to see it up on the big screen, you know, eating popcorn. Um, so yeah, we're 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 in you know lockstep there on that sort of thing. It is a tangent, but you know, it's but fun. it's your show, so <laughs> and it's fun to talk about because it is a passion. But um, I want to talk a little bit about both of the books that you've written uh, revolve around a, a kidnapping murder situation. Uh, let's talk a little bit about the frequency with of those types of crimes. Now, the Adolf Kors 
murder kidnapping was 1960. The one we're going to be talking about with Mr. Exxon, that was 92, I believe. You yeah. know, there's the Patty Hearst, yes. there's the Patty Hearst kidnapping in the mm. 70s. How common are these high-profile kidnappings? Yeah, you know, in the U.S., it's not very common. Um, you know, and when I uh, talk to people, when I go, you know, on tour, or I just speak, and people ask me, and you know, I, I I say, you know, in the U.S., I I classify them and uh, categorize them as there's been five big kidnappings. You know, either Lindbergh's baby was number one, Patty Hearst. Always gets the attention, although it was a strange kidnapping. It was not right, right. really a kidnapping for money per se. It was more of a political motivation behind it, that sort of thing, revolutionary. Um, then uh, you have the Exxon kidnapping, the Coors kidnapping, and you had Frank Sinatra Jr., which was also kind of a strange kidnapping. But those are the big five. And we've been saturated with Lindbergh's baby, Patty Hearst, Frank Sinatra Jr. But it's interesting that Coors and Exxon, two big names, two biggest names, you know, uh, in corporate America, uh, those were noticed. But that does show you that there are not that many. I mean, we... We have a few, um, and the ones that go unnoticed are usually, um, you know, they grab someone, and four days later, um, the, the kidnappers are apprehended, and everything goes well, and the person's released. So those don't make the news as much. But still, in the U.S., <clears throat> it's very difficult in this time, day and age, and, and also in 1992, to have a successful kidnapping. So most kidnappers um, target someone and not to pick on any countries, but, you know, South America, Middle East, or other places where, um, you know, you can be susceptible to kidnapping. In the U.S., technology is such, and law enforcement techniques have are such that, as I say, uh, it's easy to grab somebody. It's easy to take someone, usually. I mean, you can conduct surveillance and see their their you know routine and you can grab them maybe not being unnoticed the trick really is to make the exchange the person for the money and this day and age that's almost impossible in the united states um so and it will and as, as you'll see in the book uh taking mr exxon it was impossible in 1992 as well i mean they had these helicopters <clears throat> The FBI, I think they called them night stalkers. Uh, they were capable of uh, listening in on conversations from the air of people talking inside a car. Um, you know, they had infrared, um, you know, um, and all that sort of thing. So uh, the kidnappers, a lot of these kidnappers think in terms of what they see in the movies, Um kind of like the old gangster days and you know, it's really almost impossible in the u.s to, to successfully kidnap someone for money you know there's a lot of kidnappings in the u.s that are what i call domestic situations where you have a strange husband or a wife or girlfriend or, and somebody snatches one of the kids and crosses state lines and that sort of thing but that's that's totally different um you know the corporate exec um uh, kidnappings that's more uh, occurs a lot more 
uh, in foreign countries. Yeah, there's probably some, um, I guess, maybe sex crime type kidnappings that occur still, right, uh, which right. is a little, little different. But I've kind of gotten the impression that, you know, kidnapping for ransom has kind of gone way the way of like, you know, uh, holding up a stagecoach. You know, it just doesn't, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a crime that, you know. <laughs> like Jesse James. Yeah, it's kind, of, it's kind of a crime that's just not, you know, as you po- pointed out, technology has gotten to the point where you're, it's not something you're going to get away with. And then, of course, you've got uh, the Jean-Benet Ramsey case, which, I know we're not talking about tonight, but that was right. whatever happened there. There was a ransom note, um, and it was uh, at least supposed to have been uh, some type of kidna- kidnapping for ransom. But uh, I don't really right. know what happened there. You know, and these having written these these two books, and I've just finished a third, but it's not kidnapping and, and murder. I, I, I told my agent I did not want to be known as the kidnapping guy. You know. <laughs> yeah. um, but uh, having done it, I have met some interesting people, and one surprise has been that uh, corporate security firms have reached out to me, and um, they have used, uh, you know, Exxon hasn't come out yet, but it comes out May 1st, but the course book, I've been told that they use it even as a teaching tool to show how a uh, corporate executive who uh, you know, follows routine, uh, isn't aware of his physical surroundings, uh, that sort of thing, uh, how that can turn out badly. And so it's still a business. Um, you know, you hear occasionally, especially in the, in terms of celebrities where somebody jumps over a fence or breaks into somebody's house right. or, you know, celebrity comes home, there's someone eating dinner in their kitchen and, you know, so those things still happen. They're not necessarily kidnappings, but that's still uh, corporate security in the U.S. is still a big business. And overseas, what I'm told is that kidnappings are actually a business, in the, f- but not for big, big money. For instance, you might be in a country and there's a corporate executive or a manager of a company and they grab him. And then ask for you know only ten or fifteen thousand dollars you know in U.S. money, and you know don't intend to harm him or her, and you know and the company obtains the release, and it's just kind of like a cost of doing business, (laughs) and you know that happens quite a bit. I'm told, Uh, not not these things where you know you're asking for millions and that sort of thing. They they just um, have an opportunity. They grab somebody, ask for. 10, 15, 20,000, get it, go on their way, you know. Um, and so corporate security firms, it's their job to make sure that doesn't happen either through security teams or, you know, uh, vehicles and, and and escort vehicles and that sort of thing. So it is kind of a high-tech business in many areas, uh, Not maybe not so much here in the U.S., but, you know, if you're Bill Gates or whomever, and you're traveling, you've got to have security, uh, even if no one intends to. What I remind people uh, of is don't think that there are people out there that say, you know, I'd like to kidnap so-and-so, but it wouldn't work. You know, a lot of people are delusional yeah. or or just ignorant, and they think it would work. Uh, so it is, it's still possible to get grabbed out there. Yeah, I was just uh, watching a news program not long ago, and the journalist Glenn Greenwald, who um, 
um, has been moving around a little bit. I'm not even sure where he is right now. I think he works with a, with an online news agency. But he's a respected journalist, and he was telling a story um, that about a month ago he was somewhere in, I think, Central America or maybe it was South America, and they had five gunmen break into the home and held them at, for ransom in the home for a right. period of time. Right. Uh, you know, he obviously was afraid for his life. This happened a month ago, and uh, yeah, they ended no, up taking you know, they ended up taking whatever yeah. money was in the house and leaving. Yeah, you know, I, I ran across a guy of fifteen years ago. It's you know, a, a friend, but not a close friend, and he's worth several million. And he told me when he travels. You know, for instance, if he goes to Brazil or wherever, he has security with him uh, because, you know, somehow he said, because we tend to, he, you know, we, he said, we rich guys tend to stand out, you know, right, right. <laughs> even. And, and so when I think about it, you know, I, I think nobody's going to grab me. And if they do, they're going to be sadly <laughs> mistaken, but you know, he's correct. I mean, if you go to places and you stay at the, you know, whatever country's Ritz Carlton and you, you know, you have these nice dinners and, you know, there are people who are watching um, and looking for their opportunity. Or as you mentioned, you know, they know where somebody may be renting a home or staying uh, or living in, in some kind of vacation home and, and they take advantage uh, it's, it's, it's still, um, it's still a danger and we just don't hear about it. Um, because fortunately, you know, it, it hasn't been, um, like in Coors and Riso cases, uh, the Exxon case, uh, you know, they didn't end up murdered. Let's talk about Mr. Exxon, Sidney Riso. Tell us who he was and give us a bit of his history leading up to this event in 1992. Yeah, Sidney Riso, he, he reminds me a bit of myself other than he was successful. <laughs> but, <laughs> no, uh, you know, he grew up in New Orleans, he grew up in the South, I grew up in Nashville, and uh, he attended college at Louisiana State, LSU, and received his petroleum engineering degree and then decided, okay, I'll work for Exxon. And um, when he started out, I, I read a funny story where, you know, he was just a new kid on the block, so they gave him this dry oil well out in Texas. And said, and I think it was called New Siberia or something like that. And um, <clears throat> so he took that well and made it productive and got several millions of barrels of oil out of this thing. So that was his first stint and show what he was capable of. And then 35 years later, you know, he ends up as president of Exxon and his next step is CEO, which he would have gotten if not uh, for the kidnapping and murder. And, you know, during that time, I mean, he had a, he was a family man. He had a wife, uh, five children. You know, they moved around the world as Exxon will move you. Um, and, you know, some places were cool, like London and Australia, and some places weren't. Um, and then by uh, 19, late 1980s, he's back in Houston, and then he's transferred to New Jersey in the town, Morristown, New Jersey, which is about, I don't know, 50 miles from New York City, as the crow flies. They say, I don't know if crows fly in New York, <laughs> but... Um, <clears throat> 
I lived I, I lived in New York City for six years. I don't think I ever saw a crow. But lots of pigeons, yes. um, but um, and so you know, having traveled around the world and that sort of thing, he felt safe being back home in the U.S. and in New Jersey and living in a very nice home, a multi-million dollar home and a subdivision that's beautiful, you know, four four acre wooded lots and this whole thing. So it was not a place that you would feel unsafe. Before we get into some of the details of the crime itself, I just kind of want to take a, an overview of this because when, you know, when I started to look at this information and, and we set up the interview, I was trying to rack my brain about the press coverage I heard at the time. And honestly, I mean, I was a young man at the time and I don't remember a lot of coverage of this. I kind of remember it in the back of my head, but yeah. why, why yeah. did it seem to not get the, the kind of exposure that it certainly deserved? Well, you know, and that's a good point because if it it all depends on the news cycle and what, if there's nothing in the news, things that aren't that important will run for days. And something like this, uh, the kidnapping of the president of Exxon would have been, you know, on the news all the time and uh, television, radio. Um, but what happened was he was kidnapped on the day that the four police officers were acquitted in the Rodney King beating trial mm-hmm. and uh, LA riots broke out. So that happened uh, on the same day that he was kidnapped. So <clears throat> that as we, we all remember that sure. and uh, the coverage. So that absorbed, you know, the top news coverage. And so this kidnapping fell you know, if we talk newspapers, it would fall to toward the back pages rather than being on the front. And it wasn't only until maybe within a week um, that it started gaining traction in the news. Um, you know, but by that time, uh, we you know we weren't paying as close attention as if it had just happened. And you know, I talked to a couple of FBI agents, and one was the the special agent in charge in New Jersey. And he told me that he was out in California at the time and that they called him and said, look, we just had President Exxon kidnap New Jersey. We need you back. And he said, I can't. I'm out here dealing with the L.A. riots. And so he said it was it was a week before he could get it back. So what normally would have been front page, uh, you know, given priority um, felt fell a little farther back. And I think that's one reason we don't recall it as as quickly uh, because it was, you know, um, trumped by the Rodney King issue. And and we don't remember the course. I don't remember the course because I wasn't born. But, um, you know, the Exxon, that, that's what I'm thinking. It, it was just usurped by the uh, L.A. riots at the time. Do you have any reason to believe, again, without getting too far ahead of ourselves, but do you have any reason to believe that uh, that was intentional by the by the perpetrators of the crime? Did they recognize that maybe attention would be elsewhere? No, not at all. Just coincidence. That was just purely coincidence, yeah. That makes sense. Um, so, so there's some unique things about this particular crime, but one of the things I find very fascinating is that Mr. Riso... Uh, 
you know, you'd expect somebody with that level of, uh, of importance to a major U.S. or major global corporation, for that matter, might have a, a, what, a driver and a limo picking them up and, and all of this stuff. Tell us how the crime occurred. And, uh, you know, I, I found it very interesting that, that, you know, he was driving himself to work, right? Yes. You know, um, first I should say Mr. Exxon, the title taking Mr. Exxon, the reason Mr. Exxon, I should have mentioned this earlier, having worked for 35 years for Exxon, people called him Mr. Exxon around the office. So that's how he he gained that uh, moniker. But as you say, uh, being the president of Exxon, he he had access. He was given access to a corporate limo with a driver, and the driver was um, trained at um, you know avoiding bad situations and dealing with situations that arose even in New Jersey, um, but Mr. Uh, Riso, you know he was sort of um, the good old boy from Louisiana, and he was even though he was making lots of money and he was a multimillionaire by that time, he was very modest. Um, you know he and I tell people that he was he was. No one deserves what he what happened to him, but he particularly did not. He was a nice guy, a very nice guy, family man, um, a religious man, a man who gave back to the community. He um, also was an environmentalist uh, at Exxon, of all places, and he uh, was modest. Yeah, he had a nice home, but I have neighbors who drive you know hundred thousand dollar cars who really can't afford them, right. whereas he could have afforded a very nice car, and he drove um, this little station wagon with a five-speed transmission and, you know, roll-up windows, um, <laughs> you know, and, and, and you got to kind of like a guy like that, you know, and I, I found a statement he had made in, a, in an interview before his death, and he said, you know, every time, if I get too feeling too much like a big shot, my wife tells me to go in and wash the dishes, puts <laughs> me in my place. So, you know, he he had a good perspective on, you know, his station, even though he, he was one of the most powerful corporate executives in the world. And um, he was a good guy. So he, he, um, he would use a limo if he were traveling to, you know, for instance, go to the airport or if he was driving into New York City things like that, but just driving to work every day, you know, that was a 10 or 15 minute drive for him. And so he would just drive himself and, and, uh, you know, get his coffee like everybody else, get his coffee, get his uh, newspaper and, and start his day. Except this day, what happened on the day he was kidnapped? Well, what happened had been, you know, he did not realize that he'd been watched for several weeks. Um, the kidnappers, they wanted somebody uh, who worked for a company that could pay millions. And and they, you know, they, they did their homework. They looked around and like, okay, AT&T, Merck, different companies. And they, uh, you know, discovered that Exxon had paid a multi-million dollar ransom in 1973, I think, in uh, South America to obtain the release of a manager down there that was kidnapped by some revolutionary guerrilla fighters or something, you know. So they knew Exxon 
uh, at least had the, the mentality to pay ransoms because some companies are like, we're not paying, you know. But um, so anyway, they had been conducting surveillance of Mr. Riso. And um, typically they pose as joggers and would jog along and watch his house in the morning and see what time he'd leave and see if, uh, you know, he left in a limo with a guard or if he drove himself and what days he typically took a limo, what days he didn't. And so on this day, um, he drove himself and stopped They to get the newspaper. Well, you know, the kidnappers had noticed during their surveillance that he did that every morning. He was a creature of habit. Stop every morning at the end of the drive, pick up the newspaper and go to work. And his secretary, I interviewed his secretary, who still lives in New York City, and she said his habit would be once he arrived at work, he would close his office door for half an hour, read the newspaper, and, and drink coffee. That was his routine. So this newspaper ended up being a key point um, in the kidnapping because um, this morning, the kidnappers jogged along and noticed that the newspaper was on the driver's side. So one of the kidnappers kicked the newspaper to the passenger side, which would make Mr. Riso have to exit the car, walk around the front to, to pick up the newspaper rather than just scooping it up from the driver's side. So when he did that, um, the kidnappers were parked down at the end of the street and drove up. You know, and um, a male kidnapper, he was about 6'2", 210, jumps out with a ski mask and boots and, you know, um, all dressed in dark colors, black, brown. And he's wielding a forty-five caliber pistol, which is a big gun. And he grabs Mr. Riso as he's walking back to the car, grabs him by the collar. Of course, Mr. Riso, he's 57. Not in excellent condition. He's been behind a disc his entire life, more or less, and he had a heart attack three years earlier. So uh, he wasn't that difficult to physically subdue, and he dragged uh, Mr. Riso to the back of the van, tossed him inside, jumped in with him, and another kidnapper drove the getaway car, in this case a van, and that's how it started, and and things went quickly downhill from there. What was the date? It was 90, 1992, but what date? It was April 29th. It was a uh, leap, leap, uh, um, no, yeah, yeah, April 29th. April 29th. And, uh, which I think was a Tuesday, if I remember from the book. And, you know, it was... Um, in New Jersey in April, it was still cool, um, but it was springtime was just starting to come out. The, the trees and that sort of thing still had not leaved. And um, so, um, you know, you could still see, if you were in the house, you could still see to the end of the driveway at that point in time. So we're basically a week away from the anniversary of that, and uh, your your book yeah. will be published short, a couple of yeah. days after this. So what we're talking about twenty nine years is that how long ago it was? Did I do that? It it's amazing. Yeah, twenty nine years. Um, you know, I'm at the age where nineteen ninety two doesn't sound too bad, um, <laughs> <laughs> too long ago, but twenty nine years. Uh, and it's funny that uh, 
you know, the uh, book's release, that was just by accident because it was intended to be released last year. Uh, but with COVID, it was pushed back. Yeah. Um, and so it, it's being released, you know, more or less the day that he was kidnapped. Let's take let's take a look at what happens from the perspective of Mr. Riso's family and and the police, the authorities, and Exxon before we talk about what happened um, with the the kidnappers themselves and what they did with him. So, at what point did uh, the Riso family and authorities realize something was amiss here? Yeah, very quickly um, because. You know, it's funny. I don't think people would take note in my neighborhood, but in this neighborhood, you know, these were um, everybody was like Mr. Riso. I mean, you know, he he had in that subdivision, there were the, you know, the CEO of Merck or AT&T or what have you. You know, they all lived in the same area and, um, in fact, there was an, the vice president of Exxon lived in the same subdivision. So um, <clears throat> they noticed, uh, someone noticed uh, across the street that uh, Mr. Riso's car was sitting in the drive with the door open and the engine running. And, you know, that was clearly uh, looked as something was amiss. So they um, called the wife. And, and said, you know, your husband has your husband left work. It's like, yeah, he's left work. You know, it's the way his car is still in the drive. And so about that time, she received a call from um, his office as well saying, you know, he hasn't shown up. Well, uh, probably about, uh, I'm guessing, almost an hour had passed with the car sitting there. Okay. Um, you know, which is a lot of time, but then it's not really, right. um, yeah, I could disappear for an hour and nobody would think about it. Um, and that's how it started. So the wife left the house and walked down the drive and looked inside the, the car and she knew right away that something was uh, amiss because the car was running. She said he, he was, um, you know, a fanatic about shutting the car off and taking the keys, even if, you know, just for a minute. And she saw this briefcase and jacket and everything was in the back seat and that sort of thing. So she uh, went back home to the house and called Exxon and they sent, they first sent Exxon security out to take a look before the other authorities were called. And it didn't take long. And the Exxon, you know, that, their uh, security is pretty top notch. So as soon as they saw the situation, they called the local authorities. We then called the FBI as well. Typically, FBI doesn't get involved for 24 hours, but this was the president of Exxon, so they're going to come right over. And so you had a situation where um, you know neighbors look out in the morning and they see you know, the street line with all types of vehicles, with all types of insignias and, you know, people walking around with FBI jackets or, or, you know, um, deputy sheriffs and all that sort of thing. Just, you know, within two hours of um, him driving to the end of the driveway. At what point did the first contact come from the kidnappers? Well, um, the kidnappers had intended to leave a note in the car 
that morning when they grabbed Mr. Riso. But uh, what happened was once they put Mr. Riso in the van, there there was a struggle, and Mr. Riso was shot in the arm by the kidnapper, and so the kidnapper panicked and they drove off without leaving the ransom note. So the ransom note did not arrive until the following day. And so on that first day, you had the authorities not knowing that for sure that it was a, a kidnapping. They thought perhaps, and they have to check this out in every case. They're like, okay, did he leave voluntarily? Had he had enough of the corporate rat race and had some money stashed, sure. maybe a young girlfriend and and off he went. And so they had to check that out. And of course, that was not the case. And then they knew that he had had a heart attack three years earlier. And so they thought perhaps he'd had a medical emergency and he was taken to a local hospital. So they had to check that out. And, or maybe he had, um, you know, had um, some type of episode where he was, um, you know, uh, unstable when he was walking aimlessly around the neighborhood. Right. But, you know, they, so they had to check all that out as well, keeping in mind the whole time that, you know, it, it could be a kidnapping, but that was not the first thing they jumped on. And, but by that evening, it was pretty well decided that most likely it was a kidnapping and they were just going to wait for the note, which arrived the next day. Did it come by mail or did it come in another fashion? No, what they did, um, they never mailed uh, anything to my knowledge. It was always placed somewhere. These kidnappers use pay phones, something that some people may not be aware of (laughs) anymore. But in 1992, there were pay phones everywhere. Um, You know, I mean, you know, uh, for me, I remember, but having researched this case, you know, every place has a pay phone. Um, every gas station, you know, what have you, they're just everywhere. And so the kidnappers would use pay phones and call um, the um, Riso house. And what happened initially, I'm getting ahead of myself. So they they take the first ransom note, they put it in an envelope, and they tape it to a utility pole in the parking lot of a, the local mall there, shopping mall. And... Um, they call the Riso home and say, hey, you can go to this place and pick up the note. So they do. And and from that time forward, what was established was a mobile number um, that the kidnappers would call and, um, you know, from pay phones and, and speak directly to who they thought was an Exxon representative, but it was an FBI agent. That number was set up specifically as a contact point for these kidnappers. It was. Yeah. It was. And 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 it's funny. Um, uh, they had a command post set up where, you know, someone always had to man the phone. And they, I was told at the time that it was the first time, uh, tech, from a technology standpoint, that they were able to clone a phone. So they're able to clone this phone so that various agents had access to the phone. But so that first day, the note arrives at the, at the mall. And of course they, they take it and check it for, you know, before they check it for fingerprints, they take it back to the resale home 
where they eventually set up a command post inside the home. It was a big house. And so you have FBI and local agents there. They're examining the note. And it asks for $18.5 million, 1992, which I say is, you know, equivalent to $34 million today. I mean, that's a lot of money. Lot. In fact, it's the largest ransom ever demanded yeah. in history. And um, so then they take the note immediately and they drive from New Jersey to Washington, D.C. Um, to take the note to the lab there. Now, that was the only time they did that because Exxon's like, look, guys, we don't need you driving for two hours with a note. You can have access to one of our corporate jets. So Exxon lent the FBI a corporate jet to fly um, back and forth between the D.C. lab and, and, and New Jersey. So uh, after that second day, what you had was you had the Riso home uh, with the wife living there. Uh, the children, uh, four, there were five children. One had died by that point, but there were four adult children. And they all arrived that first evening. And you also had a situation where a lot of the house was taken over by FBI and local authorities, but they just set up, you know, kind of what you see on television. They got fax machines, computers, desks. They got things taped on the walls and diagrams and all that sort of thing. And um, so at the end of the first day, that's where they are. So tell us what the is happening. Yeah, tell us what is happening to Sidney Riso for those first couple of days. Yeah, you know, uh, you know, and this is um, it's one thing to be kidnapped, and and I've read we're kid, you know. Victims of kidnappings were taken good good care of, and but in the, unfortunately in this situation that was not the case. Um, Mr. Riso was placed in a homemade box, wooden box inside the van. And that's after he was shot in the arm, he was um, cuffed and placed in this box. His mouth was taped, his eyes were taped shut, and he, he had this rope lattice work within the box that more or less pinned him down to the floor of the box. So now, and then they close it and there's three locks on the box and they take this box in the van 30 minutes away out into a rural area where there is a storage facility, a self storage facility. And they unload the box into a storage unit. It's not temperature controlled. It's just a regular unit. And that's where he's going to be held and um, he's going to be alone most of the time. Uh, the kidnappers are not going to stay there inside the unit. They just drop him there and then <clears throat> proceed about their daily life. Um, these kidnappers in the note claim to be um, environmental terrorists uh, upset over the Exxon Valdez having uh, wrecked in uh, Alaska, off of Alaska. And... Um, they posed in that fashion for a while, but they, you know, it, they weren't, as you'll see in the book. And so they had, you know, their daily lives. They were not uh, totally uh, concentrated on the kidnapping. They were doing other things. So they just dropped him in in the uh, storage unit. So I say, you know, he goes from being one of the most powerful corporate executives in the world um, and within 30 minutes, he's in a box, wow. in a storage unit, shot, 
uh, mouth tape, eyes tape, hands cuffed, you know, rope holding him down. He's, you know, he's in pain. He's probably in shock. Um, and, you know, it's a, a terrible turn of events within a short period. Yeah, it's 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 remarkable. Now, um, because we're going to run out of time here, tell us about uh, any attempts to pay the ransom. Was that ever tried? Yes, um, this went on for um, a couple months actually, and um, the first um, ransom drop was uh, planned for three days after the um, kidnapping, okay. and. The, the kidnappers bungled that, and it didn't happen. So then, unfortunately, the next, and they were spooked, and uh, it took almost six weeks before there was another attempt at a drop. <clears throat> and unfortunately, um, it didn't turn out well for the kidnappers or for Mr. Riso. Yeah, I you know, how long, do we know how long Mr. Riso stayed alive under those conditions? Yeah, um, he died quickly. Yeah, um, I think so. He unfortunately he had a, <clears throat> a systemic infection from the gunshot wound that was not treated other than by just alcohol swabs and that sort of thing. And he was given water, a, a little water every day, no food, and and then the uh, for late April or May the temperatures rose. Yeah. Uh, uncharacteristically, and so the temperature within the storage unit, I was told, uh, was tested at one over a hundred degrees. Oh, so he's in this box, you know, one hundred degree unit, you know, with very little air, and you know, the autopsy revealed that he most likely died from, you know, a combination of um, dehydration, suffocation, and the systemic uh, infection. What do we know about the kidnappers? And in their minds, did they think they were going to be able to make this exchange quickly, get it over with? Um, because obviously they weren't prepared to care for Mr. Russo for very, any extended period of time. Or did they never, in your mind, have uh, the intention of turning him over? You know, um, there's some question as to whether they did, but I, I believe they did intend to turn him over. I, I think they just... Um, they thought that the exchange would happen quickly. So even if they mistreated him within, you know, two or three days, they would be okay. Um, and I don't understand that mentality, but um, no, I believe they intended to um, make the exchange and then make a phone call and they were going to leave him somewhere that he, he could be picked up. Though in the original plan was that they would ask for this 18 half million to be, supplied and used $100 bills placed in 10 bags that would be dropped at a train station, loaded onto a train, a commuter train there in New Jersey. Um, they would, uh, the family was supposed to be involved in the drop. They would be using a cell phone and be told to toss a bag out at specified locations. And then the kidnappers would pick up the bags and go on their merry way. Which, of course, in the book, that didn't happen. They end up being apprehended, although it did take four hours uh, that night of the of the drop. It was a, a big affair. There were over 300 FBI agents involved, yeah. 50 or so local authorities, helicopters, planes, uh, what have you. I mean, it's a very 
interesting and suspenseful time, even for me. You know, the, they they wanted the ransom drop to be in Mr. Riesel's car. So two FBI agents posed as family members, another agent of small stature. Uh, they tossed the spare tire out of the back. Crawl, he crawled in under the bags of fake money. There was never any real money supplied. Um, and he had a submachine gun. And so they were, you know, ready for any, any, um, circumstance. And, uh, you know, it was, it was a very tough night for everybody in law enforcement and the Riso family. How do we know how long the kidnappers had been planning this? You said that they had been surveilling Mr. Riso, uh, and they'd and then and for some time they'd trying to consider who their target would have been based on the options they had. But how long did they actually plan it? Yeah, they planned it about five months. They started in December of '91 planning, and uh, you know the kidnapping was April 29, so it took about five months. And how did they end up getting caught? Well, um, they just did not realize that um, the technology and the manpower that would be supplied, because this area in New Jersey is somewhat um, rural and um, is a three-county area where it was happening that night because it was a situation where the kidnappers would use a payphone and tell the drop team to go from point A to point B to point C throughout the evening. Uh, in this three-county area, it, as I say, it took about four hours. And um, during this time, you had this small area uh, saturated with law enforcement, either on the ground or in the air, and a lot of them were surveilling payphones, uh, watching for anybody that might might make a call from payphone. So finally, someone sees one of the kidnappers at a payphone, gets them license plate number, and they lose them, but later by chance, which is in the book, just by chance they end up meeting again, and um, the arrests were made at that point. And it didn't end there because they were arrested, uh, two kidnappers, and placed in separate jails, And but they neither would speak about the kidnapping. They didn't provide any information. So then you've got um, law enforcement, the Riso family, they're in a situation where we've got two kidnappers that we're aware of, maybe more, but we don't have Mr. Riso, and the kidnappers we have aren't talking. Mm -hmm. So that was a big concern, and they there was a third suspect um, that they thought was holding Mr. Riso and would um, make a deal, you know, for the return of the kidnappers and the money in exchange for Mr. Riso. But when that didn't happen, then uh, you're in a tense situation. A week passes, no reso, nobody talking, and so uh, a deal was end up uh, ended up at the end of the day. A deal was struck with one of the kidnappers for a limited sentence in exchange for telling uh, where Mr. Riso was, his body was located, and um, exactly what happened, how this came to be. Wow. Wow. 
Um, you know, this is a fascinating story, and we're, we're out of time, so we can't get into too much more detail. But the book is called uh, Taking Mr. X on the Kidnapping of an Oil Giant's President. It's going to be released on the 1st of May. Before I let you tell folks where they can get it, and before I let you go, Philip, uh, if you had got a chance to write about another crime, another book, what would it be? Anything in mind? Oh, that's a good question. Um, no, you know, I, it's funny. After these two, I was, uh, I was done with true crime for a while. I might circle back and do that. But at this point, I, I have no idea. It, it would probably be something more contemporary. Um, but these two, you know, were true crime. They're also historical. Right. And, um, and with the cores, not, so much with Mr. Riso, but particularly with the Coors family, he was also a family dynasty involved, and so you had that aspect of it. But to answer your question, you know, I don't know what it would be. You know, I've just finished the manuscript and the rewrites on my third book that is a historical nonfiction book, totally unrelated to true crime. So I don't know. But uh, I would like to add that for whatever it's worth. It's just another oddity to this odd story of uh, taking Mr. Exxon that uh, before, um, I think it was before the sentencing, or certainly before the imprisonment, uh, one of the kidnappers was interviewed uh, by Barbara Walters on 2020. I don't know if you remember that sure, show. Of course. Maybe, yeah. maybe it's still on. I don't know. Um, and she interviewed uh, one of the kidnappers and ended up winning an Emmy for the uh for the interview so it was just another strange event that, wow. that occurred in this very strange kidnapping story well it is a very strange story it's a fascinating one as well and you tell it very uh in very much detail in the book taking mr exxon where can people find that book once it's released may 1st uh and and your yeah, other you book can as well pre-order, you can pre-order release date of May 1, but as they say, it's available wherever books are sold. You know, you can go to Amazon, Walmart, Barnes & Noble, you know, where have you, and, and it should be there. It will be, it should be on the shelf May 1st, or you can order online now if you wish. And are you going to give us a hint at what the third book is about? You said it's historic, it's about a historical <clears throat> event? It is. It's, um, uh, you know, if I can say this quickly, sure. um, December 7, 1941, everybody knows Pearl Harbor. Yep. What what people, most people don't know is that the Japanese not only attacked Pearl Harbor, but they attacked several islands, including the Philippines, Hong Kong, Singapore, uh, Midway, Wake Island, um, as a coordinated attack, all happening within the same day um, as Pearl Harbor. And the U.S., did not have any planes in the air at that time, but there were four planes in the air, and they were Pan Am commercial planes in the air with passengers on board. Okay. And so the book, um, right now, the working title is called Stranded in the Sky. It's a story about these four Pan Am planes over the Pacific being caught in the first day of uh, war on December 7th, and it's told from the perspective of the passengers and crew. It's not particularly a war book. It's just, you know, you you have wealthy, influential people on these planes, and they go from having a good vacation to 
being caught in the first day of war. Wow, <laughs> that's a great angle. That's, uh, yeah, that's that's terrific. Well, again, uh, Philip, thank you so much for sharing all of this with us tonight. You and I got on a, off on a bit of a tangent to start the program, but that was that was a lot okay. of fun too. <laughs> and, and you know, and I was lost in the cyberspace out there for a moment too. So it's been an interesting night, but I appreciate it. It's been fun. And I enjoy you've done a great job uh, leading me along the, the path of this story. And I had fun tonight, and I hope uh, you did as well. I did. I had a great time, and I hope you'll agree to come back at some point. Maybe when the next book comes out, we'll get you back on. All right. Sounds good. All right. Thanks. Uh, Philip Jett. Again, the website, which I didn't mention before, is his name, Philip with one L, Philip Jett, J-E-T-T dot com. You can get more information about all of Philip's work there. Beyond Reality Paranormal is hosted by J.V. Johnson and produced by Orion Palmer and Slick Eddie Edwards. Like us on Facebook and subscribe to our YouTube channel. Please consider supporting the program either through your podcast platform, click on the link in the description, or on Patreon at Joha Productions. If you'd like to be a guest on Beyond Reality Paranormal or you have a recommendation for a guest, contact our producer, Slick Eddie Edwards. Eddie is spelled with a Y at slickeddieedwards at gmail.com.